You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. In the 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of Yahweh. The house that King Solomon built for Yahweh was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle one was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went up by stairs to the middle story and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Now the word of Yahweh came to Solomon, Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built twenty cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls, and he built this within as an inner sanctuary as the most holy place. The house, that is, the nave in front of the inner sanctuary, was forty cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. The inner sanctuary was twenty cubits long, twenty cubits wide, and twenty cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, 
and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched the one wall and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Around all the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance to the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the carved work. He built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of Yahweh was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bul, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 780 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, December 19th, 2023. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about distinguishing between friends and enemies and also distinguishing between different kinds of friends, personal friends and public friends. Also, similarly, distinguishing between different kinds of enemies, personal enemies and public enemies. We will also talk a little bit about being legible or illegible. Which should we be? Should we be very public or should we be very private people? What is the advantage, one direction or the other? Why shouldn't we be just private people who keep to ourselves, do our own thing, and don't get involved in anything going on in the larger community or the larger world. We'll talk about that and more, but before we talk about any of that in depth, let's discuss 1 Kings chapter 6. Solomon here builds the temple, and it takes him seven years. If you'll recall, here just a few episodes ago was episode 777, and at the very tail end of that episode, I talked about the number seven and how it has 
a great deal of significance in the West. It's most people's favorite number. Do they know why? Do they have any idea of why they think that it's a lucky number? Probably in the most cases, no. (laughs) No, they don't. But it's the most commonly picked favorite number. And if you ask people to pick a random number, it's the most common one that they will pick. Seven shows up quite often in the biblical text. And it shows up in this chapter. That's how long it took for Solomon to build the temple. It took seven years. And we could go into item by item, detail by detail, this many cubits here, this many cubits that. Here are the dimensions. All of that is important. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in the text. We could go into the building materials, and that's fine. That's fair game. Absolutely. I'm not downplaying the significance of the building materials. But as with the previous chapter and the one before that, where I highlighted the very fact that attention was paid to the division of the responsibility of governing Israel, there was a high council or a court of high officials who presided very much like a presidential administration, cabinet positions, the cabinet convenes and discusses, and each has a specific part to play. But then when a big decision needs to be made, or you're trying to figure out how all of the decisions being made go together and can be in harmony, they gather and they discuss and they deliberate. It's less interesting to me. It's less relevant to the purposes of my discussion, who the specific men were, and it's more relevant that there was a division of the responsibility. There was a hierarchy. There was an order. There was an organization to it. And that organization was closely associated with the prosperity and the peace and the good governance that Israel enjoyed. So also here, for most of you, the talk of cherubim and open flowers and palm trees may be a little bit affected, (laughs) a little bit obscure, or yeah, whatever. And so let's just put that off to the side for a moment, not to say that it's not important, but to say the very fact that the particulars are listed here is interesting. The fact that the measurements are here is interesting, that they're recorded at all is significant. The fact that the building materials, what was made out of what and where and in proportion to the other things, the fact that all of that's written down is significant. The details are important. They were important and they are important. And that is to say, it's okay to be detail-oriented. It's not unspiritual to say, okay, this should go there and the other thing should go over here and it should be made out of this and then that. No, no, that should be made of this other thing and decorated like so. It's okay that there are particularities and specifics, and that is good in and of itself. God is detail-oriented, and isn't that great for us? Isn't that great news? He has so ordered the universe that however much you zoom out, you see order, and however closely you look with a magnifying glass or a microscope, you see order. And so it's fitting that a temple built to the name of Yahweh, is orderly, and it's intentional, and it's deliberate, and it's specific, 
And perhaps the oddest business in the whole chapter here is verse 7. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry. Why? So that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. Why does that matter? Why is that important? It's almost as though this place being consecrated included but was not limited to the sound that would be heard in the place as it was being built. Set aside whether it had been consecrated just yet, even the very fact that you didn't hear all this loud construction noise for seven years right there where the temple was being built, consecrated it after a fashion. It's perhaps the equivalent of taking off your shoes as you're going into somebody's home to say, we're going to do this work quietly and in order to do it quietly, we're going to do a lot of the loud parts at the quarry. In fact, we're going to do all of the loud parts with regards to hammers and axes and tools of iron at the quarry. And then that is to say, too, we're going to have to get our measurements and make sure that we are deliberate and precise at the quarry because there's no do-overs. So you're going to measure twice and cut once at the quarry, transport the materials to the construction site, and then assemble them quietly for seven years. That, to my way of thinking, is reverential and poetic and fascinating. But again, the particularities of what building materials were used, where and how, and how they were decorated, and in proportion, and the measurements, all of that detail being included, even if the significance of each detail is obscure to me, the significance of the details being recorded and written down and us being able to read about them at all is important because the height of spirituality is not to dispense with specifics and only speak in generalities. And that fact, that truth needs to be appreciated by more Christians, particularly in America, where quite a lot of neo-Gnosticism has crept in under the guise of ecumenicism, under the guise of having a good testimony and being here, oh, I don't know, 15 to 20 years ago, seeker-friendly. That's how it was phrased. That's how it was presented. Now it's mutated and it's no longer being seeker-friendly. Maybe a century ago, it was liberal theology and ecumenicism to the end of world peace. And over the last century, we saw trends here and there come and go by different names. I remember coming of age with the seeker-friendly movement and the emergent church. But now we find that Christians are told to not deal in the particulars, to just stay out of public life. If you get involved in public life and you bring your Christian faith to bear in any particulars, in any specifics, particularly with regards to how you yourself live, if you might say, no, I will not do that. No, I don't want to participate in that. No, I can't affirm that. You will get hate for it. And you will get a wagging of the finger from many professing fellow Christians. Many who profess to also be Christians will say that 
there's something legalistic or there's something unloving about being particular. Why? How do they know? Because it's upsetting somebody else. And that's the cardinal rule is don't offend other people with the details. If there's a laziness and there's an apathy and there's a sloppiness and there's a lack of discipline and there's a selfishness and even if there's a wickedness and a folly that won't be challenged, the bigger problem for the mainstream of American evangelicalism is that you would significantly and meaningfully counter that for people to see and hear. That people would see you working in particulars and being detail-oriented and being serious about it will rub them the wrong way and make them feel threatened. And how will many react when they feel threatened? They'll look for some excuse in you, something to pick at, something to criticize, something to condemn even, so as to box you out because they don't want you bringing that talk of specifics, particularly where it relates to obedience. They don't want you bringing that into the social settings, which are otherwise very free and easy. If you're bringing particulars and you're saying, ah, because of this biblical principle, this biblical command, therefore we should do this specific thing, you will get pushback because that might offend somebody. And very rarely will somebody admit that they themselves, they're the ones who might be offended. You know, speaking for a friend, asking for a friend, isn't this going to offend somebody? Are you the guy who's offended? Crickets. Ooh, you're not supposed to ask that. That's why we have to ostracize you. That's why we have to push you out. And yet, Scripture is full of details. How can it be that it's written down how these things were measured and placed and decorated and how long the temple was in the building? how long it took to finish it. How can it be that all of that is written down and we find specific numbers and figures, Old Testament and New Testament, as though that is an expression of God being a God of order and not a God of disorder, a God of peace, not a God of chaos. How can that be? And yet we are so allergic to specifics as pertain to godly living living in a Christian way, either privately or in community with others? Is it a trust issue? Oh, but there are so many people who've been abusive and I just, I don't like being told what to do because it reminds me of somebody who was abusive with their authority. And so just don't tell me what to do. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And bear in mind, seven years is not just the temple being built. It's seven years of the builders following instructions. It's seven years of the materials being worked according to specification. It's seven years of people telling other people, here's what I want you to do next, and overseeing the work, and double-checking the quality of the work before things were transported to the construction site. It's seven years of coordination under the orders of Solomon, under the watch of people that were appointed by Solomon, under the watch of Solomon himself, I'm sure, going out to inspect, how's it coming along? What's the progress report? Probably giving corrections here and there. Seven years of not just saying, yeah, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. However you like to do this, that's fine. Seven years of not just 
Do whatever seems good to you, and I'm sure God will miraculously make this all come together. No, seven years of people working together in an orderly public way to accomplish a common objective. And this is not just a few people. This is a lot of people. There are 180,000 people in the previous chapter, 180,000 men who are conscripted to do the work of gathering the materials, working the materials, building this temple. That's a whole lot of people. 3,300 in charge as overseers. That's a lot of middle management. That's probably several layers of management because these teams over the frontline workers are also part of teams where they have middle management. And then those middle managers are also part of teams that have upper management. And at the very top, those upper management personnel are reporting to Solomon, no doubt. If there's an issue, if there's a question, if there's a problem, they're going to Solomon or Solomon as he checks up on this, is going to them and asking for an explanation and giving orders or giving his correction to them. And then that trickles right back down to the guys on the very front line who are doing the work. But this is not familiar to us. This is unusual. This is set apart, actually, from our lived experience. This being so public and so large-scale And so intentional when it comes to our expression of faith in God, our devotion to God, our love for God. I'm not saying we should be building a temple. I'm saying that we should have more care for the particulars and being orderly than we do. There is too much, just do whatever seems good to you. And that's distinct from being free. It's good that we would be free, the freedom we've been called. But here I have in view the ecumenical movement, which in terms of what order and what structure is put in place can be downright arbitrary most of the time. Arbitrary and conciliatory so as to not have any public enemies, not have any public enemies of other denominations, not have public enemies of people in broader society. We don't want anybody to not like us, and so we're going to be very permissive. Or we're going to just not say anything about this or that or the other thing. We're not going to do anything that would be offensive. And we'll say that that is in keeping with being blameless. I mean, think with me for just a moment about Solomon for seven years building this temple and how quickly and how often Israel, before this and after this, went worshiping after the gods of the nations around Israel. And you have to believe that there are, at present, in Israel and in the surrounding nations, people who worship other gods besides Yahweh God, who maybe wonder, why are we expending this much effort, spending this much time, investing this much in the way of resources and building this temple to Yahweh God? I don't worship Yahweh God. What's the big deal? This should be a temple to my God, or this should be no temple at all because I'd like those resources for myself. Boy, they have a lot of extra over there. Maybe that should be redistributed. And again, I'm not saying in the present we should be building a temple like Solomon builds a temple here. Now we are the temple 
of the Holy Spirit. But then that is to say, if we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and there is this much intentionality to the proportion of the parts to the whole and one another to make the whole, are we perhaps too casual in the way we compose ourselves by our choices, by our habits? Private habits, yes, but also in community, in relation to our fellow Christians, for instance, in the context of the local church or a denomination or a network of churches or a coalition of various denominations, pastors from different denominations, different local churches, getting together to write, for instance, to attend conferences and conventions and retreats. I'm talking about how intentional we are about those sorts of things and to what end. All of this done so peacefully in 1 Kings chapter 6 that they're going to do the chiseling and the cutting and the shaping at the quarry, not at the site where the temple is actually being constructed. Very peaceful in that regard, but that, it seems to me, without it being explained, is to be assumed as a mark of reverence for God, not some fear that the neighbors are going to call in complaints about disturbance. Yeah, I think this violates a noise ordinance or two. It's been seven years, guys. Can't you do that work somewhere else? No, 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 no. That would be a far-fetched and implausible explanation, it seems to me. What's far more plausible is that this is an expression of devotion to God, of reverence for God, be still and know that I am God type reverence. God telling Moses 480 years prior, take off your sandals for the ground you are standing on is holy ground. Why? Because God is there. And the expectation is that this temple is where God will meet with his people. This is where the name of Yahweh will be met with by the people and they will know God and he will be their God and they will be his people. Atonement will be made for their sins. He will be worshiped. He will be honored here. Why wait until the ribbon-cutting ceremony? Why wait until the ribbon-cutting ceremony to treat this temple under construction as though this is holy ground? For that matter, why is it that I hear so much excuse-making among American Christians about how the world is getting so bad and we don't see America in the end times and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse until... Jesus comes back or calls us home until the rapture or tribulation. Better just buckle up and hunker down and avert your eyes. Don't get into all that because Christ is coming back and he'll get it all sorted. Why do I hear all that sort of talk as though we're waiting for the ribbon cutting ceremony to live like Jesus is Lord of all creation? Why are we not already acting as though the temple in which the Holy Spirit of God resides now, which is the believer, the Christian, the saints, his church, is consecrated, is holy ground. Why are we waiting? Maybe the particulars right now matter. Maybe the particulars matter on the front end, how you're building to determine whether at the end this is going to be a happy conversation with the person who inspects the work, who commissioned the work, and who checks it to see how it's going. Maybe we should be more particular, more careful, more attentive to the details instead of being 
functional liberals or neo-gnostics. Just a thought. For our first story to consider, though, in this episode, let's turn to AaronWren.com and a post he made to his blog, to his Substack on December 5th, Become Illegible. He writes, in the negative world, people should look at ways to become less visible to governments and other entities. He writes, the famous seeing like a state how certain schemes to improve the human condition have failed is an influential book arguing for skepticism about government programs to improve society. One of its key concepts is legibility. As the Wikipedia entry for the book describes it, quote, the book makes an influential argument that states seek to force legibility on their subjects by homogenizing them and creating standards that simplify pre-existing natural diverse social arrangements. Examples include the introduction of last names, censuses, uniform languages, and standard units of measurement. While intended to facilitate state control and economies of scale, Scott argues that the eradication of local differences and silencing of local expertise can have adverse effects, end quote. One example of legibility is the introduction of land registers. In medieval society, rights to land were governed by custom, were often not written down, and were highly idiosyncratic. By creating formalized land ownership structures and registries, centralized national governments were able to, among other things, more easily collect taxes. Today, everything about our society is designed around extreme legibility, and it's not just the government doing it. Bern Hobart, author of the influential newsletter, The Diff, that I mentioned last week, has as one of his running themes that big tech sees like a state. The legibility construct is something that we should take into account in what I've called the negative world, where for the first time in 400 years of history for this country, official society views Christianity negatively. This is perhaps also relevant to non-religious political conservatives. The key idea is that if you are not legible to the government and other entities, it is harder for those entities to impose their mandates on you. One example is the growth of informal men's retreats, as I've noted before. All men's groups and organizations are heavily stigmatized in our society and outright illegal in many cases. Church men's groups, some remaining single-sex schools, fraternities, and a few other groups are basically what's left, and many of them have a target on their back. Witness the years-long jihad. <laughs> Interesting choice of word there, Aaron Wren. Witness the years-long jihad the New York Times ran against the Augusta National Golf Club to bully them into admitting women. What's more, even if all male organizations manage to exist, becoming a member of one could be a hazard to your health, so to speak, if the media decides to make an issue of it as they've been known to do. Now, we'll just pause right there and I'll say it's not just broader society. This is also a influence in the church. As in, there's quite a lot of being conformed to the pattern of this world. As we see broader society turning against men meeting together specifically with other men, you get people in the church who are not looking at the particulars of the biblical text. For instance, they don't pay attention to the specifics. They don't like people who do pay attention to the specifics of the text. They mock them. They exclude them. They call them ugly things. They wag the finger. They try to spiritualize, boxing them out of the process of making decisions so that what? 
so that they can reframe fellowship and discipleship and evangelism so as to be palatable to the world, so as to not be offensive, to not provide a stumbling block. But then in the process, what you get is increased androgyny in the church. In the worst cases, I would say, and this is Garrett speaking, not Aaron Wren speaking. We'll just put him on the back burner for a second. I would say in the worst cases, the most liberal churches, you can't barely tell the difference between the men and the women. And I mean literally, physically, they dress the same, they cut their hair the same, they look and they talk the same. The men have become emasculated and the woman, it's typically a woman or a few women who act like matriarchs and they really run the church. The woman or the women, they talk about as manly as the men do and that all is presented as the way that God intended it. Instead of men being men and women being women and men having positions of authority, not just in the church, but also in their homes, overseeing the spiritual discipline of their homes, as well as the physical provision and protection of their families, that feeds directly into, in conservative churches, in historically conservative churches, as in 2,000 years of Christian history, church history, the men being the ones from whom pastors will be called, deacons will be appointed, and even just discussion in general in a church context as to what to do together as a church will be held, will carry on. As androgyny has been preferred, it just so happens, oh so conveniently, I'm sure by total accident, that the men have become weak and effeminate and the women have been empowered. Wouldn't you know, that sounds exactly like what the broader society, what the godless have been demanding, but then that's a result in large part of what Aaron Wren is talking about here. This is not a new problem, but it's a real problem. And if we're just now getting acquainted with it, maybe our comprehension is what's new and now we need to do something about it. Now we need to make meaningful changes if we're not going to suffer the worst possible consequences. Because it's one thing when you're suffering the consequences and you have no idea what your condition is. It's quite another thing when you get the diagnosis, the doc says, hey, here is your illness, here's your malady, and you refuse the treatment plan. You refuse to take meds, you refuse to change your diet, you refuse to exercise, you refuse to be more disciplined about when you go to sleep and when you wake up, you refuse to work on your thought life and your habits and your way of relating to other people and stressful situations. At that point, you're not a victim, you're a villain in your own story and in the lives of the people around you who you are making miserable by refusing to do anything about what it is that you've just been granted in an opportunity from a diagnosis coming from a doctor. Now that we know that this is an issue and it's a longstanding issue in many of our churches and denominations in this country for at least a century, that liberalism, whether overt and it's written into the doctrinal statement that, yeah, we don't really take the Bible seriously. We don't really believe God, but we still like to use his name. We use his name in vain, but don't call us on that or we'll kick you out. <laughs> or it's more subtle, like, hey, on paper, we have great doctrine, but we don't do anything with it. We don't actually act like it. We're functional liberals. Either way, the result is much the same. Perhaps the result is all the worse for those 
who are hypocrites about it. They say they have sound doctrine. They say they believe the Bible, but they don't. They don't actually do what God says to do. It makes no difference. They just do whatever's right in their own eyes because there's no king in Israel. The result is generally speaking the same, that mandates are imposed by those who want a godless outcome. When you're very legible, unless you're willing to suffer when you refuse to comply with the mandate, when you're very legible, sooner or later, the right pressure points will be applied. Exclusion, mockery, just to name two, perhaps even stiff penalties, perhaps public humiliation, op-eds, exposés, documentaries, perhaps regulation, perhaps fines and even imprisonment will follow if you will not bend the knee. But it is worth considering how legible are we? Are we necessarily always having a good testimony? Are we in some cases actually being very unwise to be so overt about some things? I mean, one, it might be hypocrisy, but for another thing, it might be folly because what is going to be done with this public show is it's going to be used against you. Your name is going to be written down and it's not just your government officially, it's faceless bureaucrats, as we've found out in recent years, faceless bureaucrats and intelligence agencies and the staff for elected officials contacting social media so that social media can be the heavy and shut you up and damage your brand, damage your business model. We'll lean on big tech to apply the pressure because it would be unconstitutional if we did it ourselves, but if we have them do it, that's okay, especially all the more if they're illegible. And isn't that interesting that our cultural and spiritual enemies, our public enemies as Christians in the West do so much that is illegible. What they claim publicly is this or that is the public square, or they're only here to present the facts, or they're objective, disinterested, trustworthy. But then a slew of emails is released to the public because some whistleblower leaked those emails to a trustworthy independent journalist. And the next thing you know, you're reading their mail, their internal memos and dialogues and instant messages and text messages. And you're realizing, oh, wow, they go after people they disagree with politically, culturally, religiously, they go after people like this. That wasn't legible. And yet, when all of your communication, all of your back and forth, all of your filings can be looked up in a moment's notice by them, they have your number. <laughs> they know what to do to, with minimal exposure to risk for themselves, neutralize your capacity to be successful at being faithful, <laughs> in a word, at being independent, at being somebody who, as Paul says, aspires to live a quiet life, minding your own affairs. Even just minding your own affairs is going to be impossible if you are too overt, too public, because they will get into your email account and they'll get into your bank account and they'll get into your tax filings and they'll get into your private correspondence over text or instant messaging, unless you've taken some precautions 
to protect those pieces of information about you, they'll go in and they'll find any number of things sufficient to insinuate just enough to get people to turn away from you. And once you're isolated, then their work is done because they don't really particularly care if you personally, privately believe the things that you believe, want the things that you want. They only care about whether publicly you're going to be able to sway your community, your friends, your family to a course of action, which is contrary to their aims. That's what Aaron Wren is talking about here when he says become illegible. That's what he's getting at here. Men's organizations, even men occupying any position of special honor or privilege at all, at all, at all, is a no-go. It's verboten. Why? Because the radical left, the statists, find it threatening. They get very nervous when men start getting together and talking and discussing and comparing notes and making decisions together, which is to say they regard us as so many slaves. And once you know that, once you realize that that's their illegible impression and bias, that's their aspiration, it becomes unconscionable that we go along with that willingly with a smile and we say that that somehow is devotion to God. Or in the worst and the most poisonous and most abusive and most manipulative of cases, when you have clergy and you have those who are allowed actually to get to a position of prominence and influence, espousing Christian doctrine, or so they say. In some cases, it's not so, actually. It's a lie. It's dishonest. They are hirelings. They are mercenaries. If they're not double agents, they are at least on the payroll for the other team. When they start presenting the height of your civic duty, the full extent and breadth of your civic duty, as you just go along with whatever the people giving the orders tell you to do next and don't criticize them, don't question them, don't disagree with them, don't try to achieve independence for you and your family and your friends, we come full circle to the question of whether so much of what is prescribed is actually faithful to God and his word or, on the other hand, whether it's a show. It's peace, peace when there is no peace. It's hypocrisy. It's virtue signaling rather than virtue. The test is when you are illegible, are you illegible because you want to be as faithful as possible? And this is the best way to be as faithful as possible, to fly under the radar here and not let the right hand know what the left hand is doing and do your giving in secret because your father who sees in secret will reward you. Is that why you're being illegible? Are you being illegible because you actually don't want to influence these things in any meaningful way that would take a risk, even if that means you're not going to influence these things at all in any respect. When you are legible, are you legible only to the point that this or that statement or action is going to not offend the modern sensibility, the zeitgeist, the spirit of this age? Are you only legible insofar as people will not be upset with you? And I mean in the church as well. If the answer is yes, you have some soul searching to do. You should probably talk with God about that. You should probably search the scriptures to see whether these things are so that you've been told are the marks of a healthy church or the signs that you are being obedient and godly. You should probably double check the math there. 
Speaking of this legibility, illegibility question and our relationship to government or what our expectations should be in relation to government, it's been a minute since we talked about how the race for the Republican nomination for the 2024 election is going. It's been a minute, but I want to play for you cut one here shared by Peter Heck over at Not The Bee on December 13th. The title of this post is, This is probably the best thing Ron DeSantis has ever said. You decide. Take a listen. See what you think. Here it is. Uh, Reagan, Washington, Lincoln, excellent. Uh, one of the guys I'll take inspiration from is Calvin Coolidge. Now, people don't talk about him a lot. He's one of the few presidents that got almost everything right. He understood the proper role of the federal government under the Constitution. We need to restore the U.S. Constitution as the centerpiece of our national life. And that requires a president who understands the original understanding of the Constitution, who has a good sense of the Bill of Rights, and who knows how we've gone off track with this massive fourth branch of government, uh, this administrative state which is imposing its will on us and is being weaponized against us. So Silent Cal knew the proper role of the federal government. The country was in great shape when, when he was president of the United States. And we can earn, earn, learn a lot, a lot from Calvin Coolidge. And of course, that's right. Of course, that's right. That's a great answer. In fact, given where we're at right now, that's the best answer. That is the, the best answer. Our biggest danger domestically and even internationally because it makes us vulnerable. It makes us less prosperous, less free, less strong when it comes to facing adversaries abroad. The biggest threat that we face right now is the administrative state, bar none. It is the progressive machine which has slowly but surely made our country into more and more of a socialist banana republic. You have activists who work in conjunction with unelected bureaucrats who then in turn contact big tech to suppress the free speech and the free association and the political participation and the economic participation of anybody they decide they don't like. So as to control our country and not just to control our country, not to govern our country, but to totally control. It's totalitarian. It's repressive. It's oppressive. It's unconstitutional. Silent Cal is a great answer, Ron DeSantis. Silent Cal, once, because he was a man who was very economical, he was very frugal with his words, he was once sitting next to a woman at a dinner party who leaned over and said to him that she had made a bet with her friends. And her friends had said, we bet you can't get him to say more than two words the whole dinner. And he heard this, and the dinner proceeded, and he said nothing the whole dinner until the very, very end when he turned to her and leaned in. And according to legend, he said, you lose. (laughs) That is the sort we need. And that's exactly the sort the progressives have been boxing out for about 100 years now. Right about 100 years. Blame Woodrow Wilson and FDR and LBJ. Blame Barack Obama and Joe Biden. But blame even more than them, the unelected bureaucrats and the radical left activists and both the overtly 
theologically liberal and also the functionally liberal because all alike have colluded and cut deals with each other to either actively participate in the foiling of conservatives, the silencing of conservatives, the suppression and the ostracization of conservatives, or they've participated by being rather hands-off about it or running interference for it. No, we just need to be submissive to the governing authorities. Does everybody govern me except for me? At what point do I get to aspire to live a quiet life, minding my own affairs, working with my hands so that I can be dependent on no one? This seems like the opposite of being dependent on no one and being self-sufficient. And it seems like it's by design. As a matter of fact, it is by design. And it's propped up through machinations and conspiracy and corruption. Silent Cal understood and knew the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and he was very focused on not establishing bad precedents for future presidents. Even when he could technically do a thing, he was not going to set an example that future men who did not have his restraint would then refer back to and say, ah, see, he did it, so now I can do it. It stood, nobody challenged him, and now it's case law. He refused to do what was not permissible and what would make the country less prosperous, less safe, less free, even when there was a lot of pressure from people around him to regulate this, intervene there, executive action against such and such. He would say, no, that's not how that should be done. He was restrained, and the result was incredible economic prosperity, much more liberty, and following shortly after, both Republicans and Democrats who believed that they were smarter than everybody else, and that's why they were in a position of authority. Calvin Coolidge had the humility to say, and he was therefore smart enough to know, that what the people of this country need is to be, by and large, left to make decisions for what is beneficial to themselves and their households and their businesses and their communities. And they can't be left alone when the government at a federal level, at the very, very top of the federal government, for instance, in the person of the president of the United States, is constantly setting a mandate or prohibition on this or that, one size fits all. Let's say everybody's the same. Let's standardize everybody. And oh, by the way, that's exactly what the public education system does. It may not look like it, but you don't know what to look for if you think that there's so much diversity in the public schools. The goal of the public schools is to be an obedience factory where everybody thinks the same way and therefore behaves the same way so that they're easily manipulatable, so that they're easily governed by totalitarians. Calvin Coolidge is the right answer for our time because the biggest threat we face is the administrative state. An unchecked and power drunk bureaucracy that works hand in glove with activists and big tech to control us and to treat us like slaves. It's gotten so bad, though. We should talk about our next story. Satanic displays have no place in government buildings. Andrew T. Walker writes for World Magazine, December 11th, 2023 is when this was posted. Here we have a photo of Lucian Greaves, co-founder of the Satanic Temple, Speaking of temples, if you're not going to build a temple after a fashion, somebody will. 
Say, for instance, the people who worship Satan. Here pictured, he's standing inside the headquarters of the Satanic Temple in Salem, Massachusetts. And it's not accidental that they have the headquarters in Salem, Massachusetts. They would say that that's appropriate because of the Salem witch trials, no doubt. But then that is a very interesting follow-on to saying that it's ridiculous that there ever were witch trials, that there ever was any concern about witches and people who are in communion with the devil. Your proof that that was never a concern is to literally worship Satan in public and call for equal airtime with Christians, equal prominence of place in public square sites, public buildings for your satanic statues and altars right beside nativity scenes. Curious. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody ever worships the devil. Hey, what are you doing now? What, what are you going to do about your protests that nobody has ever worshipped the devil. We're going to worship the devil. Uh, okay. Maybe the point here is you're trying to destroy us. And your first step in trying to destroy us is to confuse us. Maybe that's what this is. As Andrew T. Walker writes, A story out of Iowa, a state not typically known for its transgressive cultural values, is making headlines. According to local reports, under the guise of religious freedom, an organization called the Satanic Temple has installed a satanic display in Iowa's Capitol building during a Christmas season, no less. To make matters even sillier, not silly, actually evil, the group admits that it does not worship Satan or, wait for it, even believe in Satan. It is hard not to see the whole episode as anything other than merely a juvenile and symbolic gimmick meant to poke and provoke conservative Christians, and their own defense of religious liberty. But it does raise an interesting thought experiment in the limits of religious freedom. If the First Amendment is there for every citizen, is it there for every view? Now, let's just pause right there. There's more to this. You can read the rest of it on your own time. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode, but I just want to stop right there and deal with this claim that Satanists don't actually worship Satan. We don't even believe in Satan. Yet you are telling us publicly that you're the satanic temple. You're building altars and statues to Satan. You're insisting on after-school Satan clubs in the schools. You're literally telling us publicly that your religion is revolving around the father of lies, and then you expect us to believe you when you're like, ah, we don't actually even believe in him. You're holding up the father of lies as your hero, as your God, and then you expect us to believe you when you say, Oh, uh, we don't even really believe in him. We don't really worship him. We just want to make you guys mad. You know, it, this is like if somebody robs a bank and when challenged, when questioned on where they get the temerity to go and steal other people's money from the bank, they push back and they say, oh, no, we're not really stealing other people's money. No, no, no. No, 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 no. We have an account here. Yeah. So we have money here. This is really just a protest against other people keeping too much of their own money. You know, that really should have gone to somebody else. There are people who hold bank accounts here who've been dishonest in their business practices, and they didn't really earn that money either. And so we're just protesting. Uh, you know what? It's still a bank robbery. And you're demonstrating the character of a person who is not to be taken seriously and not to be believed by the very fact that you're robbing this bank, the fact that you might hold a checking account here with a few hundred dollars in it, is not to legitimize what it is that you're doing that is evil and corrupt and wicked. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't be stopped 
You know, why do you have that gun? Oh, I'm just to protect myself. Yeah, to protect yourself as you rob the bank, as you steal other people's money. The greatest lie the devil ever told was that he didn't exist. It's just part of it, friends. The Satan worshipers, in case it's not obvious, they are public enemy number one for Christians. The enemy of our souls is Satan. We didn't start it. He started it. But God's going to finish it. And in the meantime, the people who literally worship Satan, and then they tell us, oh, we don't worship Satan, they are our enemy. They regard Christians as their enemies. Publicly, they say, you are our enemies. We are enemies. Yes, you too. (laughs) I regard you as my enemy as well, Satanist. You should come to Jesus. You should repent before a holy and righteous God says, that's it. Time's up. But then they're not being illegible, and yet they are. They're lying, right? They're saying they don't worship Satan all the while erecting altars and statues to Satan and in various places around the country championing the religious experience of having an abortion. In fact, offering abortions, arguing for abortions. Boy, it really sounds like blood sacrifice on behalf of Satan. No, 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 we don't even believe in Satan. Yeah, but you're acting like it. You're acting exactly like Satan acts, though. You're being an enemy of our souls, and you're going about like a roaring lion, seeking whom you may devour. I think you're my enemy. I think you regard me as an enemy, and I think it's okay for us to just be honest about this. In fact, we should be honest about this. I'm at least going to be honest about this. We are not friends. We are enemies, public enemies. And here's a question. When the Satanists are building temples and the Christians are in the mainstream functional liberals or just out-and-out social gospel proponents affirming gay marriage, transgenderism, in fact, even hosting transgender celebrating drag queen shows, drag shows in their churches, drag queen story hour in their churches, when they're being legible in that way, how can there be any excuse for saying that conservative Christians are imposing their morality on other people and that therefore is wrong? It's hypocrisy, but that's the world we live in. That is just of a piece with the rot and the corruption and the wickedness and the evil and being given over to a reprobate mind. That is an inherently unreasonable mind. You can't reason with it in large part because they don't feel any special need to negotiate because they have the upper hand, whether singly by themselves or in conjunction with others who actively and passively participate. What's so rich, what's so ironic is that when the conservative Christian gets upset about this and does something about it, the conservative Christian is said to be the bad guy. And that's of a piece with actually joining the satanic drive to destroy our fellow man and destroy our country and be an enemy of God. And so should we be legible? Should we be overt? Should we be illegible? Should we just go underground? Should we be quiet and just let them have it? Hey, if they want the public square, I'm not going to put a nativity scene right next to their Baphomet statue. Should we just let them have it? Should we just keep quiet and hope this all blows over in due time? As the functional liberals are saying, the biggest danger here is that we would impose our morality on other people, that we would blur the lines between church and state by actually 
engaging in our civic duty as Christians? I know the answer that I see most often and I hear and I read most often from the mainstream. The mainstream answer is yes, the biggest thing we're concerned about is Christian nationalism, so-called. The biggest thing we're worried about is conservative Christians actually getting specific and not being hearers of the word only, but being doers also and calling other people to be doers of the word also. That's what we're most concerned about. And that's the biggest threat is that that will upset the godless and the Satanists. At a certain point, the folks who carry on like that also become my enemy. Not because I chose them to be an enemy, but because they are relating as an enemy in a very pernicious and very malicious way. And so maybe you do have to weigh and measure how legible to be. How much do you let on and who do you associate with? At a certain point, perhaps you have to say, I can't go with you on that. can't be a part of this. I can't join your organization. I can't go to that convention or that conference. Why? Because it's going to revolve around affirming and conforming to the pattern of this world or else condemning anybody who would confront the pattern of this world and call for repentance. For our next story, though, let's turn to another not to be post, this one from Harris Rigby, December 13th, titled, Remember the Christian Pastor Running for Oklahoma Senate on Abolishing Abortion and Returning to Scripture? Yeah, he won. I'll play for you the audio of the embedded tweets of videos from this post. And then before we get to our big essay for this episode, I'll share some thoughts. But here it is, cut two. Take a listen. If, if I would back away from the word of God, what authority do I have? That would, that would put me being a man under my own authority rather than the authority of God. And whenever I say things like child sacrifice will stop in Oklahoma, I can speak that from the position of the authority of God rather than my own. And, you know, other liberal or leftist positions, they're speaking from their own conjured authority. Or you could, you could call it a serpentine theocracy, a, a, a position of the authority of the devil rather than the authority of Christ. And so I'm going to draw straight lines. Okay, there's the first, not the last, the first by Dusty Devers, the pastor who ran for Oklahoma Senate and won. Here is cut three, the same pastor as interviewed by Tom Askell and Graham Gundon posted to Twitter by Ben Zeisloft. Listen to this one too. When you think of, 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 a, of a government practicing righteousness, then we have to ask by what standard? And the standard is the God who created everything and who uh, will not be thwarted in all of his plans. And if we recognize that Christ has been seated after, after his resurrection was seated at the right hand of the Father, high above every rule and every authority and every name that is named, and he is now, as Revelation 1 says, the governor, the ruler of all the kings of the earth, then yes, we can rep- recognize that a there is a difference between the civil government and the church, but under that, Christ is ruling, and he is king over all. So 
our, we, it's a presuppositional approach to uh, government and and the church. And the presupposition is Christ is Lord. And of course, that's correct. Christ is Lord. But it's a presuppositional thing, he says. You have some saying that the governing authorities, in a civil sense, are completely autonomous, totally separate, as in Christians should not engage with them at all in any way to affect public policy, the laws that we live under, the enforcement of those laws, the interpretation of those laws. Christians shouldn't be trying to engage with public officials or our government in a civil sense. We shouldn't be participating in any way that would actually influence the outcome. You have Christians saying that. You have prominent Christians, a lot of Christians saying that. And here's this minister who just won by 10 percentage points in Oklahoma, denying them that presupposition and saying flat out, no, it's God who presides. It's God who rules and reigns over all the kings of the earth. It's Jesus as king who is king above all kings. And we should engage in our civic duty like we believe that, (laughs) like that's true, not as though Christ is only presiding over the church. Christ is only presiding over what happens on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday night, or if your small group or Bible study gets together during the week, Christ only presides over that, but he's not at all interested in what's going on in your community, your city, your state, your country. That's none of his business. It's none of your business, none of his concern, none of your concern. What's interesting, not just in the clips that I played for you here and in his winning 10 points. What's interesting in his framing of this is that Devers is a Southern Baptist pastor. He's an SBC pastor. But as Aaron Wren, who we were just discussing a little while ago, tweets out, Dusty Devers, an SBC pastor, just won a special election for state Senate in Oklahoma. What's interesting about this race is that the president of the SBC, Bart Barber, who lives in a different state, donated to Deaver's primary opponent. Curious that. And what was I just saying about some people you would expect to be allies actually relate as enemies? All the while, they're telling you you should be illegible, and I'm not trying to poke at Aaron Wren because I don't think that's what he's getting at at all. But what the mainstream Let's just go with the flow American evangelical establishment. The big Eva types are saying is when they tell you to be illegible in terms of civic engagement, in terms of political engagement, what they're willing to do behind the scenes privately, quietly to undermine you if you go forward anyways, it is up to and including donating to your primary opponent from another state, even though that's not their business and they're saying that it's not your business, they're going to donate, the president of the SBC is going to donate to the primary opponent of Devers here? Wow, that's gross. <laughs> that's gross. Now, bear in mind, I don't know a whole lot about Devers, and I don't know a whole lot about Brat Barber. I'm sorry, Bart Barber. He was being kind of a brat here. I, I don't know a whole lot about these guys, and maybe there's a whole lot of backstory and nuance and all the rest, or maybe this is just of a piece with 
the consensus of the ecumenicals and the functional liberals that the thing that terrifies them most is the same thing that terrifies the radical left most, which is so-called Christian nationalism, which is an assertive Christian political engagement that says, for instance, child sacrifice will stop because Christ is king. What terrifies the mushy middle evangelifish who are pacifists is that fellow Christians who don't just say, this is my doctrine, they actually act like it in public, would get somewhere, and in the process, it would bring embarrassment on the mushy middle Christians who have conflated a good testimony and fellowship and discipleship and evangelism being done in a winsome way. They've conflated that with essentially just conforming to the pattern of this world. If they do get involved, it will be to try to shut up and to silence the Christian's who are bolder than they are and more assertive than they are. And that might just be because it would expose their cowardice and their laziness and their apathy and their being very complicit in these things, being very lawless. They don't want the balance of power to shift in favor of their internal to the local church or SBC, in this case, network of churches or denomination or big tent evangelical ecumenical movement, they, they don't want the balance of power to tip away from their more conciliatory peace, peace when there is no peace approach to public engagement. And so they will get involved to make sure that the more outspoken don't win. And if that doesn't work, well, then what's next? Do you have in a lot of churches and in a lot of denominations, in a lot of supposed American evangelical Christianity, do you have something like the deep state? That's really what I'm getting at. Do you have something like the bureaucratic state, which quietly, subversively clips the wings as early as possible on any of their number who start to get assertive and say, let's deal in specifics here? I think I think so. I, I think yes. I think very much so. They won't do it publicly unless they have no choice, but they'll do it quietly behind closed doors, they'll insinuate certain things rather than coming right out and saying, I disagree with that and having a debate about it and having to actually make their case. They'll just insinuate and imply certain things. And what's so rich and what's so hypocritical about that is what they'll condemn the more conservative Christians who are outspoken for is publicly criticizing their opponents, their enemies, their adversaries. They'll say, you can't do that because that's not playing nice. That's not loving your neighbor. But then they'll insinuate certain things without proof, without having to actually show the receipts. They'll insinuate things so as to isolate, to box out. They'll do the equivalent of donating to a primary opponent, for instance, for example, quietly behind the scenes so that if, for instance, Aaron Wren finds that out, You'll know where they stand, but then they don't have to take a bold public position. And if challenged, if questioned on it, I'll tell you from experience the sorts of things that they'll say. They'll say, I really don't want to get into that. I don't think that would be a helpful conversation. I don't think we should go there. Let's just play some soft 90s popular Christian music and praise songs, and let's meditate on our own sinfulness and how we're not perfect either but it's spiritualizing cowardice. It is a lot of being 
complicit, actually. It's dirty. When it's some radical leftist activist complaining to a bureaucrat that they're friends with, who then in turn contacts big tech and says, we want you to silence this person online. Make no mistake, it's still unethical. It's still unconstitutional for somebody in our government to be violating the free speech rights, free association, political participation rights of we ourselves or a fellow American. It's still unconstitutional. Just because they do it behind the scenes, quietly, through proxy, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden it's sanctified, it's morally gray, neutral, who can know? Let's talk about something else. No, it's corrupt. It's oppressive. It's conspiratorial. When David, just to give a biblical example here, when David sends word to Joab to put Uriah on the front lines where the fighting is the fiercest and then have everybody else pull back so that Uriah will be cut down, it's not the enemy who murders Uriah. It's David. David knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was trying to do. He was trying to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. And it wasn't Uriah who was at fault. Oh, but Uriah should have followed orders. He should have just gone home and submitted to the governing authority in that case, who was the king. He should have just gone home and slept with his wife so that the king could save face and not be exposed for being an adulterer. That's the sort of reasoning that we're seeing popularized in the mainstream as pertains to the way Christians relate to the civil government. I'm just following orders. That's what Romans 13 says. No, not, 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 not that. That is not what Romans 13 says. When Christ is king over all kings, when he rules and he reigns, that means he also rules and he reigns over you when some lower magistrate tells you to do something that violates the laws of God or the commands of God or the promises of God or the character of God is being defamed as a result of you being complicit in this. That's not you having a good testimony because the ungodly are okay with you now. That's you having a bad testimony and it's all the worse of a testimony when they will accept that from you and they'll say, ah, that's what a real Christian acts like. That's what it really means to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it really means to have a good testimony. That's what it really means to have fellowship and to prefer unity of the spirit. Again, you have some enemies who are declared openly and they're public enemies. And you have some types of enemies who will flatter. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy, Proverbs says. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We see that in example after example not just in the broader society, we see that within what is called the church in America as well. And it's gross. It's corrupt. It is not godly. It is not biblical. It is not of God. It's of the devil. Just as much as the satanic temple display in the state capital of Iowa is satanic. For our last story, though, or for our last essay, The friend-enemy distinction by Matthew Pearson over at American Reformer is in view. Published November 29th of this year. The subtitle is Vermigli and Schmidt on how to live out Christ's command. 
Of the many teachings and sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels, Pearson writes, none are so universally catechized in children and taught from the pulpit than these words, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5.44 To many, this seems like a radical concept to answer with love toward hate and blessing toward cursing. Yet, as the command of Christ, it is binding on all Christians. A natural question many grapple with is the import and place of this command for Christians in politics. Is political pacifism mandated by our Savior? Must we embrace a martyrdom complex? If Christians do command political power, should they wield it for explicitly Christian interests, or is it incumbent on Christians to handicap themselves politically for the sake of fairness and love? Is it right to conceive of political opponents, those with diametrically opposed visions for society, as more than friendly competition, but rather as enemies in this sense? And finally, is there a difference between private relations and public political relations? German jurist and political theorist Carl Schmitt, 1888-1985, may be of assistance in helping answer these questions. In his work, The Concept of the Political, Schmitt conceptualizes politics through the antithesis of the friend-enemy distinction, and in this directly speaks on the command of Christ to love one's enemies. From this, Schmitt makes another distinction between the private and the political enemy, positing that the command of Christ applies particularly to the private enemy. Is this distinction an innovation unique to Schmidt to justify his conception of politics, or is there precedence in the broader Christian tradition? The answer to this can be found in Italian Protestant reformer Peter Martyr Vermigli, 1499-1562, who, in his discussion on the magistrate, distinguishes between public and private individuals. From this older writing, it can be seen that Schmidt's distinction between the private and political enemy is not an innovation to help push his friend-enemy antithesis of politics, but is something that has precedence among the magisterial reformers. Now we'll pause. That's the intro section to this piece about distinguishing friends and enemies and how does the Christian relate to both. Before we go on, speaking personally, I have seen this. This is not just Matthew Pearson's observation that this is a issue. This is a major point of contention within Christian circles. I have seen this, that when it comes to any kind of competition, whether between Christians or between Christians and non-Christians for an outcome, for the business of making decisions together, there are many who will push back if you are adamant or if you stand firm on a certain course of action or a certain proposal, they will very quickly and without a second thought start talking as though they are assuming you are being unfair or you are being unloving to be insistent. As though we know you're being fair if everybody gets the same outcome. We know that you're being fair if you're always deferring to whoever it is that disagrees with you. But then what's the distinction between being peaceable or, in as much as depends on you, striving to live peaceably with all men in that case, and on the other hand, being a doormat, standing for nothing, falling for everything, 
what differentiates the peacemaker from the coward? If fairness and love will be defined as you just always give the other person whatever it is that they want. That's love. Why isn't fairness and love sometimes saying no? And then if the other person persists, saying and reinforcing, no means no. I said no. When we're talking about the local church, what I have seen is somebody who will very quickly, behind the scenes, if you talk with whoever it is that's coming to you and pushing back on you, pushing back on somebody who is hard-headed, strong-willed, not wanting to be reasoned with, they'll say, well, this is your Christian brother and we need unity. And then they'll also say, well, they're not as mature as they should be, but you just need to give them some grace. Just pour some grace on it. They're not as mature as they should be. And then somehow from that, it naturally follows that you should therefore give them what they want as though that will help them to become more mature Christians in due time. Yeah, just give them what they want and leave it to the Holy Spirit to persuade them if the Holy Spirit wants to persuade them that they are mistaken. That's not for you to persuade them. That's not for you to actually have conflict and sustain your position as they oppose you. Or if they were the first ones to be heard stating their case, it's not for you to oppose them and to insist, no, that's a bad idea. I'm not going to go along with that. All the more, perhaps, when we're talking about those outside of the church, to say to those outside of the church who are not Christians, no, and also no means no, that's not correct, we're not doing that, is portrayed as not having a good testimony, not being a good witness, not being a good Christian at all. Who are the good Christians? The good Christians are the ones who accommodate, who compromise, who cut a deal. They're the bipartisan Christians. How do we know that they are the good Christians? Because they're loving their enemies. But all of this, again, it works off of the unstated assumption, which is never actually put in so many words, and it never has to be defended, and it never has to be proved. It's just taken for granted that to give the other person what they want and to not have a conflict, that is the standard. That's the proof of love. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, however, does not mean you just give your enemies whatever it is that they want. They always get their way. You know, like how Jesus taught, like how Jesus related to his enemies, right? Like how God commanded the people of Israel and those who led the people of Israel at various stages in their history. You know, when they had enemies, remember all those times where God told Israel, Yeah, just give your enemies whatever they want. Yeah, I don't remember those either. I don't remember those passages. I don't remember those instances where God said, yeah, just give them whatever they want. That's what I'm looking for. Moving into the next section, Matthew Pearson writes under the heading, Politics as Friend Enemy. Chief to Schmidt's conception of politics as laid out in the concept of the political is the friend-enemy antithesis. Schmidt lays the groundwork for this by noting that various realms are defined by particular antitheses. For morality, it is between good and evil. For aesthetics, it is between beautiful and ugly. And for economics, it is between profitable and unprofitable. Schmidt notes that while there is overlap between some of these antitheses, 
Ultimately, the friend-enemy antithesis of politics must operate independently of these other antitheses. A political friend may be morally good or aesthetically beautiful, but this need not always be the case. Many who voted for Donald Trump were aware of his scandalous comments and affairs and would rightfully see them as morally repugnant. Yet he was voted on not because of his morality, but because of his political relation as a friend in contrast to the enemy, the other. The friend can always be defined in contrast with the enemy as Schmidt states, quote, but he, the enemy, is nevertheless the other, the stranger, and it is sufficient for his nature that he is, in a specially intense way, existentially something different and alien, so that in the extreme case, conflicts with him are possible, end quote. Despite Schmidt's call for the independence of the friend-enemy antitheses, he does not deny that each of the antitheses may draw on the others for support. Though this is the case, Schmidt is primarily concerned that each distinction may be treated independently of each other. Now, here, I want to do a little bit of work tweaking the example that Pearson brings up of Trump, where he says Trump was voted on not because of his morality, but because of his political relation as a friend in contrast to the enemy, the other. I would say not so fast. If we're talking about morality here, there was a moral imperative. As much as the never Trumpers would say, oh, I can never, I will never vote for somebody like Donald Trump. Why? Because he's an immoral man. The or what was a moral category as well. And oh, by the way, the overturning of Roe v. Wade is not amoral. It's not morally neutral. Insofar as Trump was promising that, his private conduct or the scandals surrounding him or the rumor of scandals, the constant scandal mongering in the media about anything and everything that he said and did, that did not mean that for Christians like myself here in America, when we voted for Trump, we were being amoral. This was just a political calculation. No, no, my politics are predicated on what is good that the governing authorities should be rewarding, what is evil that the governing authorities should be punishing. And on the other end of the political spectrum in this country, their politics are predicated on how do we liberate ourselves from the commands of God. It's as simple as that. They're not progressives, they're transgressives. And they call transgression liberation. But back to Pearson. Schmidt on private versus political enemies. Having established the fundamental antitheses at the center of politics being the dichotomy of friend and enemy, Schmidt speaks of Christ's command to love one's enemies. He begins by noting that the political enemy is not a private adversary whom one hates by virtue of personal quarrels. Instead, quote, an enemy exists only when, at least potentially, one fighting collectively of people confronts a similar collectivity. The enemy is solely the public enemy because everything that has a relationship to such a collectivity of men, particularly to a whole nation, becomes public by virtue of such a relationship. End quote. The political enemy is the public enemy, not the private one. Schmidt goes on to note that Christ's command to love one's enemies is referring not to public enemies, but to the private as the Greek word for private enemies is used in both Matthew 5.44 and Luke 6.27, rather than the Greek word for public enemies. No mention in these verses is made of the political enemy, and this was common knowledge throughout the history of Christendom as, to quote Schmidt, quote, never in the thousand-year struggle between Christians and Muslims 
Did it occur to a Christian to surrender rather than defend Europe out of love toward the Saracens or Turks? The enemy in the political sense need not be hated personally, and in the private sphere only does it make sense to love one's enemies, i.e. one's adversary. It certainly does not mean that one should love and support the public enemies of one's own people. End quote. With this distinction, Schmidt sees his conception of politics as fitting comfortably within a Christian framework that seeks to honor the commands of Christ. One need not cowardly stand by idly in the name of loving one's enemies as those who hate him destroy his way of life. He can instead follow his Christian forefathers who so bravely waged war against the Muslims and fight back. In doing so, he demonstrates a love for his own. Now we'll pause again because this is a very important point. This is a very important point, and I for one, didn't know that the word used in the Greek in Matthew 5.44 and Luke 6.27 is specifically for private enemies, not for public enemies. Thank you to Matthew Pearson for teaching me that. (laughs) That's kind of a big deal. It's kind of important. But then really, what is that getting at? That's getting at the distinction between you acting out of pure selfish motives. Maybe you have an enemy personally because you've been a jerk. You've been rude. You've been obnoxious. Maybe you offended the person and you never went and made it right. And you should have. You never resolved that. And now, rather than you resolving the conflict with your personal enemy who you offended, you sinned against even, you say, well, I'm just going to turn the other cheek. Maybe that's not actually so loving. Maybe you go around making enemies And you never resolve anything, but that's your stubbornness and that's your pride. And you're just piling on by playing the martyr when that person gets upset with you because you were being a jerk, because you weren't doing what you were supposed to do, what you had an obligation to do. And you were doing things that you shouldn't have done that you had an obligation not to do. There was an expectation reasonable. Your personal enemy had every right to be offended. And here you are claiming that you're just being like Christ. But that is a very different thing than public enemies. Public enemies where, say, for instance, there's a civilizational struggle. There's a clash of two armies. And this is a typical dilemma that soldiers throughout history have had. Why do I want to kill that guy in the opposing army? What's he ever done to me? Why am I even here? This is why it has to be explained, whether honestly or dishonestly, the reason to go to war in the first place. There have to be just causes. There have to be pretexts, economic, diplomatic, social, religious. They have done what is evil. Or if morality is not a factor, then you say, we just want their stuff. Let's go get their stuff. It's good for us to have what rightfully belongs to them in our storehouse. In the case of a neighbor who would raid and pillage and rape and destroy, how are you loving your neighbor if you cooperate and you're like, hey, here he is. Here's my neighbor. Here's his stuff. Here's his house. Yeah, you want me to help you light it on fire? Here's his wife. Here's his kids. Yeah, by all means, carry them off. I'm just loving my neighbor. Or what would be more typical for pacifists I'm just going to stand back and do and say nothing. And again, I ask what distinguishes that, that way of thinking about loving your enemies from cowardice, 
Is there even a category for cowardice if you say that that's what is the moral imperative? I would say there is no category for cowardice or the coward may redefine bravery to say, oh, actually, it takes quite a lot of bravery to give everything up and just give your enemy whatever they want, including other people. Here's a question. If you have two neighbors in conflict and you're called to love your neighbor as yourself, what does it look like in that case? Do you just stay out of all that? Or if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, do you offer to be a mediator? Do you offer to arbitrate? Hey, I'm going to talk you through what are the competing claims here and let's weigh and measure who is in the right and let's get this resolved. I care about you guys. I don't want to see you in this conflict. This is not good for you. It's not good for me. It's not good for our neighborhood. That's where I think you have blessed are the peacemakers coming into play. But then you will never resolve any conflict if you just tell both sides, let it go. Well, wait a second. (laughs) What if this neighbor is claiming that the other neighbor stole something very valuable and they still have it in their possession? Yeah, just let it go. It's just stuff. That's lawlessness at that point. That's not peacemaking. You're not loving the neighbor who's just had his stuff stolen as you ought. And even the neighbor who did the stealing, you're not loving him as you ought because you should be calling him to repentance of his sin, which is still active and ongoing so long as he holds on to the stolen goods of his neighbor. It's these kinds of conflicts where the one neighbor who did the stealing, if you tell them you need to give it back, that's not yours, will hate you. And now they might become your personal enemy, but which came first, them being a personal enemy or them being a public enemy, them being a cultural and political enemy. And what does it mean that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities? If the human element never comes into play on the other side of the equation, we wrestle against powers and principalities and the rulers of this present darkness, the governing authorities in the heavenly realms, that is, demons, fallen angels, manipulating coercing to try and defeat God's purpose. If you can be engaged in that conflict, and you're supposed to, and we are supposed to, and it's a present tense, not a future, we will judge angels. No, we will. How much more so matters pertaining to this life actually is more in view here. Because just like you can get involved in that spiritual conflict, so also people can get involved on the other side. And actually what they're operating from is demonic And it's not merely we have a difference of opinion. No, no. This over here is of Christ. This is of God. How do I know that? Because I have his word. And no, please stop with the studied ambiguity. Yeah, but we can't possibly know what that actually means. Funny how easy it is to say that as soon as it comes to the practical application piece and not just trivia, not just hearing the sound of our own voices in one another's ears. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a difficult topic. It's kind of a difficult subject. Let's change the subject. <laughs> it's always what comes next. Yeah, I just don't know if it would be very helpful for us to talk about this very difficult subject and figure it out. Let's turn the channel. Let's talk about something else that's easy. Or let's talk about something I want to talk about. And if you let the other person just decide, well, okay, we're just not going to talk about this long list of things because there might be conflict, again... The assumption is baked into the interaction from the pacifistic Christians 
I would say a big driving force behind those pacifistic Christians is the ecumenical push and, yes, functional liberalism, which actually will sooner make enemies of fellow Christians who are not functional liberals, not out-and-out progressives. In fact, they're vocal opponents. They're vocal enemies of progressivism and functional liberalism. They will sooner be made enemies by the pacifists in the church. Why? Because something more core, more critical to the expression of Christian faith, particularly towards enemies who are outside of the church, has taken precedent, is prioritized over rejoicing with the truth, making disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. If you don't have a category for enemies you oppose and you resist and you stand firm in your resistance of, then at a certain point, really, what's the difference between you and them? Aren't you just waiting? Isn't it just on their time frame at that point to dictate you're going to follow all of their ways? You're going to hold all of their positions. You're going to say all the kinds of things that they say. You're going to not say any of the things that would offend them. At what point do we just say you're a disciple of those people, actually? What's difficult here, where this is talking in Pearson's work at American Reformer about private and political enemies, is you will, and I speak from experience, you will have some overlap where you're trying to engage politically and all of a sudden people that you thought were friends and family who would be very supportive and would be persuadable, they instead show that their primary overriding alignment, their pre-commitment, their identification with a group is actually along the lines of what you are pushing back on, what you're criticizing, what you're confronting. I resemble that remark. They're probably thinking to themselves. And they're also probably thinking to themselves, ooh, I feel like you're attacking me. I'm feeling personally attacked. But why is that? Is it because you've actually prioritized this part of your identity on the basis of being accepted by these people over here and this group over there instead of prioritizing seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. It's a difficult, difficult problem and I have not figured it out yet. What happens when the private enemy and the political enemy suddenly coalesce? You're trying to be engaged politically. You have enemies. You expect you're going to also have friends and allies and instead so many of those who you expected you would be on the same side of and you would be able to persuade them They instead turn on you, and they instead would sooner donate to your political opponent and line up on their side because, oh, well, now they're being objective. See, they're proving how objective they are. They're proving how detached they are from all this and how above all this they are. That reminds me of Ronald Reagan's evil empire speech that he delivered to the National Association of Evangelicals. He warned the Christian ministers at that convention to not give in to the pride and the arrogance and the folly of thinking that we're above all this. The United States versus the Soviet Union, yeah, we need to be seen as above all of this, disinterested. Let's draw false moral equivalence. And in fact, we'll criticize even harder the side that is fighting for the good just to drive that point home and underline it and put it in all caps. But then 
Is that actually true? Is that actually good? Is that actually a beautiful thing or is that an ugly, mercenary, cowardly thing and you're just dressing it up in pseudo-spirituality, pseudo-piety? These are important questions. Back to Matthew Pearson at American Reformer. Under Vermigli on the magistrate and private individuals, he writes, Vermigli, in his commentary on the lamentations of the prophet Jeremiah, speaks on a wide variety of topics as he offers his exegetical insights on Jeremiah's lamentations. In his commentary on Lamentations 121, he notes that under the New Covenant, Christians are called to mildness, clemency, and kindness to not only one's own people, but to all people and even one's enemies. Vermigli implores the readers to recall how the apostles had wished for Christ to rain down fire on those in Samaria in Luke 9, 53 to 56, and how in return Christ rebuked them for their retributive spirit. Vermigli continues on by noting that despite this, there are still examples of retribution in the New Testament, although they are rarer than how they occurred in the Old. From here, Vermigli transitions to noting that, quote, whatever has been spoken here, you should receive as pertaining to private zeal, for vengeance because Christ's spirit has not changed that which concerns magistrates, the state, and public life, end quote. In light of the various changes wrought under the new covenant, that which pertains to the state and public life is not one of them. A magistrate ought not to have mercy on all and to love his public enemies as magistrate, as, quote, magistrates ought not to use the pretext of the change in status to diminish the severity of justice. At the same time, they may follow mildness of spirit and evangelical kindness by not pursuing but pardoning injuries done to them as private individuals, end quote. In regard to that which was done to them as private individuals, they are to show mercy and forgive. In regard to that which is done to them as public persons, they are to execute justice because they bear the authority of God and wield the sword to punish evildoers. Vermigli expands on this by transitioning from civil authority to ecclesiastical authority, noting that one ought not to abstain from excommunication in order to demonstrate love or mercy, as ultimately this is not a personal sword, but the sword of Christ. Vermigli concludes by noting that, quote, for what we discussed about clemency in the New Testament age pertains to particular desires of private individuals for vengeance, end quote. And oh, by the way, this is the backstory for why judges in all spheres need to be very careful to recuse themselves when they have a conflict of interest. At least admit and file the conflict of interest so that everybody is aware. At least own it. But ideally, you give the case to somebody who does not have a private grievance against this person. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But then what does Paul write in Romans 13? The governing authority is a minister of God to do what? to reward those who do what is good. If you do what is good, you should be protected. You should be dealt with kindly and honored and praised and complimented and appreciated. But if you do what is evil, take care, watch out. The governing authority does not bear the sword for nothing. It's there to punish evildoers. In conclusion, Pearson writes, both Schmidt and Vermigli distinguish between public and private persons. In regard to political life, Schmidt notes that the enemy in the friend-enemy antithesis is solely referring to the public political enemy and that the words of Christ regarding loving one's enemies do not eliminate this reality but pertain strictly to private and personal enemies. Likewise, Vermigli notes that the various calls for clemency seen in the writings of the New Testament pertain particularly to the retributive desires of private persons for their personal enemies 
This has significant implications for Christian politics, as no longer can one rationalize their retreatist, pietist politics by simply shouting, love your enemies, but must actively seek to defeat their enemies who threaten and attempt to usurp their very way of life. A robust Christian politics must be strong and bold, willing to identify enemies and unwilling to back down from defeating them. In so doing, one honors Christ and demonstrates a profound love for neighbor. And that is the entirety of this piece. But what a great piece of writing here. What a helpful, insightful piece of writing here, because this is so much at the center of the internal conflict in many Christians I know, and also the internal conflict at the heart of American evangelical Christianity. This idea that you are obligated, you are duty-bound by the command of Christ himself to give your enemies, those who hate you, politically, whatever it is that they want. A Republican, for instance, not negotiating with the Democrats and saying, nope, we're not doing this thing. I propose we do this other thing instead. A Republican continuing to investigate allegations of criminality and corruption, even when the Democrats say, we want you to stop investigating. The Christians who've been very confused about how to relate to enemies, whether you should ever have political enemies, whether that's in and of itself proof that you made a wrong turn, you've forgotten your first love. Those Christians, they see the Republicans getting the Democrats upset and they say, see, you're not being like Christ. See, this is why I don't get into politics. Maybe you didn't get these attitudes and these presuppositions about conflict from the biblical text. Maybe you've read them into the biblical text. Maybe other people who taught you taught you poorly and they read them into the biblical text. Maybe this pacifism is actually not responsible and it's not loving your neighbor well. Maybe this pacifism is not godly. Actually, it's going to have an impossible time squaring Old Testament battles and wars New Testament, as Pearson says, there are rather fewer instances, but I would say, read on, (laughs) read on to the book of Revelation. It doesn't get much more comprehensive and conclusive and widespread and large scale than the whole earth. In fact, not just those who are alive now, but the living and the dead will be judged. And it says not just that Christ will judge, but that the saints will judge the world. The saints will judge angels. How much more so matters pertaining to this life, Paul says. So then you don't have things as simple as the pacifists would make them out to be, where you say, I have private enemies, and therefore I never exercise judgment. I never say, no, that's wrong. No, that's not true. No, we're not doing that. I never disagree. I never debate. We never have any conflict at all, because as soon as conflict arises, then we've got to squash it as fast as we possibly can. We've got to give somebody what they want or remind them that unity, unity is the order of business. That's the word of the day. And it will be the word of the year and the word of the decade and the word of the century and forever ad infinitum because that's what we're called to in Christ, right? No, actually, not unity uncritically on any terms whatsoever as though that's all Christ commanded teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Well, what all did Christ command? Well, he just said, get together, make sure you come to church very often, and you always get along. And there's never any conflict. There's never any disagreement or debate. 
there's never any confrontation. Well, that's funny. It's a funny thing you would say that because what about Matthew 18? If your brother sins against you, go to him privately. Boy, that sure sounds like not just turn the other cheek. That sure sounds like confrontation. What if he won't listen to you? Well, then you probably did it wrong. That's not what Jesus said. Well, it was something like that. What if he didn't listen because he's hard-headed and he's stubborn and he's proud and he also has a sinful nature and it's not just me when I go to him explaining that he's sinned against me? Yeah, maybe. No, definitely. See, these are the sorts of things that flow from either a correct view about friends and enemies or a faulty view, which is very common in our day. The church, in very many cases, has become a place where people go to feel good about themselves. And if they're not feeling good about themselves, then they know that the church is not doing its job. And how does the church know what to do when they come to a point of decision? Well, they figure out what's going to make the most people or the most important people happy, comfortable, feeling good. Let's not ruffle feathers. Let's not upset anybody. Why? Because then you'd have to work through some conflict that you've been avoiding since forever. Okay, but you didn't get that from the biblical text. So kindly, don't question the sincerity and the genuineness of Christian faith for those who are saying, this is imperative and time is of the essence and you don't have all day and you don't have all year and you don't have an indefinite amount of time to just wait for these things to blow over and sort themselves out. We have real responsibilities to exercise judgment now. He who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. It's not just sin. If you do something you shouldn't have done, it's sin if you don't do the thing that you know you ought to do. And if you can't tell ever what good you ought to do, and nobody else can tell you either, then at the bare minimum, please step aside as people who do know the good that they ought to do are doing it so as to have a good conscience, so as to keep their way pure, to keep their hands clean. Don't try to persuade everybody of your studied ambiguity, even as you yourself are admitting on one item after another after another, well, we really don't know. Well, then why are we doing what we're doing right now? Can I have any confidence that what we're doing right now as Christians in America is what we ought to be doing? Are we saying what we ought to be saying? And why is the limiting factor that some people have the wrong idea about pacifism? And oh, by the way, at what point does the pacifism enter into a dialogue with the conservative Christians who have read their Bibles and are going to open their Bibles and show, here, see this? Here, see this? It's funny how it works in one direction, and that is very suspicious. It works in one direction. We're not going to offend certain kinds of people with certain kinds of decisions, certain kinds of positions. We've got to be open to reason. We've got to be open to making compromises. We've got to be teachable. Like you're teachable when the conservative Christian wants to open the word of God and say to you, see this, see this, it is written, it is written, it is written. No. And it's funny how that works. But then it's not so funny and it's not so surprising If the temptation that has seized us that is common to man is, rather than being transformed by the renewing of our minds, to be conformed indefinitely to the pattern of this world and to move the goalposts. Anytime somebody says, well, let's stop being conformed to the pattern of this world, you just move the goalposts out into the eschaton as to when you're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
call others to be transformed by the renewing of their minds, but you yourself will wait, thank you very much, until Christ returns and makes you be transformed. But then a word of caution. Jesus said, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, on the last day. And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness, he'll call them. What, and I'll leave you with this, this last question and thought for this episode, what distinguishes the pacifist who always gives political enemies what they want and would sooner make a personal enemy of their conservative fellows in the church? What distinguishes that pacifist from a worker of lawlessness at a certain point? When told to jump, they ask how high, but only if the one calling the tune is of the left. They won't do likewise if it's coming from the other direction. Nope. Nope. I can't go for that. No, no can do. That's something we've got to figure out though. If we don't know the answer, well then the answer might be that there is no difference. And that should very much concern us. That should very much concern us that a lot of these pacifistic Christians are actually workers of lawlessness. And they may be deceived in supposing that they are in Christ, even as they question the Christianity of those who resist the devil so that he will flee from them. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got to run. I've got somebody to meet out on site, a new guy who just hired on. I've got to show him around, show him the programs, do some programming myself, do some note-taking on programming I've done over the last few weeks. I've got to get all that done in a timely manner, and I'll probably get interrupted multiple, multiple times as I do it. That's all right. But for now, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.